How's it going this morning? Who's going out after church to go Mother's Day shopping? That's supposed to be an icebreaker, probably a terrible icebreaker. So if you have your Bible, um, I would like to say we had a little store you could go shop at if you need to. Um, Anyway, sorry. Uh, (laughs) Let me just detract from that right now. Uh, If you have your Bible, go to 1 Samuel 22. 1 Samuel 22. Um, I'm continually amazed by the Lord to have plans way different than my own. Um, And uh, this week I set out with the plan to tackle what we had planned ahead of time. Um, And uh, the Lord just midweek was like, that's just not where I'm going this week. Even though everyone has a book that has a pretty little printout of the verse and uh, has a pretty little spot to take notes on that verse, um, that's not the verse we're doing. And so um, if you have your pretty little book... 1 Samuel 21, um, 3 through 9 is not where I'm going to be. I'm actually going to be a few verses ahead um, in chapter 22, really in the first two verses. So growing up, I was, uh, uh, and I still am, although um, I'm having to cut back a bit, but growing up I was just a huge uh, sports fanatic um, and uh, just loved uh, playing sports, and especially younger, like you just play a lot of pickup and a lot of, you know, like team stuff, and you'd gather with your friends, and what would you do? You'd, you'd pick sides, and you'd play something, whatever it was, whatever kind of ball was there, like you played it, and you, you know, you picked teams, and you always wanted the best people on your team, right? Um, and you, like, you knew ahead of time, like going in, like, I, I gotta get him. He's the best, and he's gonna be on my team, so you, like, you always want to pick first, or you'd, you'd play it a certain way so that you'd, you know, trick them so you could get the good guy, or hey, you come late, and after they start picking, then you pop into the scene, and then I'll get to pick you. Um, it's just, it's just my world, um, for years and years and years, um, where this idea of, of establishing a team and establishing a plan and wanting to be the best and wanting to win, um, was just a, a, an incredible ambition as, as an athlete, and I think in, whether you're an athlete or not in any arena of life, you can identify with that, right? Whether it's work or education or um, school, uh, you just never want, you just want like, you want the, the group project where that, that go-getter person is in your group, right? And you're like, hey, you're, you took all the notes in class, right? Like, you want to take this home and work on it and just bring it back when you're done? Like, I'm totally confident. I think you'll do a great job, you know? You still got that 4.2, right? Um, and so... Like, that's, like, innate within us. That's who we are. And what we're going to look at this morning literally blows my mind. Because that's not who Jesus is. And that's not who David is. There's something about the life and the way that Jesus lived and the way that even King David lived that attracted very different kinds of people that we go and try to recruit and try to get for our team. So um, that's kind of what I want to look at today. So um, King David, let me just kind of give a little background. King David is running for his life from King Saul. King Saul was removed from the throne because of disobedience to the Lord. Um, David took his place 
And um, it's clear that David was anointed, filled with the Spirit, um, and had the anointing of the Lord and the, the Spirit of the Lord, and it was in a place as king, and yet Saul um, had none of those and now was pursuing David's life. And so David's on the run trying to navigate how he's going to survive. Um, and it's interesting because, I mean, you're probably familiar. What's, what's the phrase, what's the biggest phrase that we find in the Bible or just even in culture or church culture that describes the life of David? What is it? David's a what? A man after God's own heart. And I want to I set that as a foundation as we step forward here because that is just an, it's unbelievably crucial because we're going to look at the life of David for a little bit and then we're going to go to Jesus who really comes from the line and lineage of David and we're going to see unbelievable similarities in who David was and then even who Jesus was, although David was a sinful, awful, broken man, when he was under the control of the Holy Spirit, he lived out that identity as a man after God's own heart. Um, so, First Samuel 22, 1 and 2. It says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Edelam. Um, so you're running for your life, what do you do? You go and you find a cave. So he gets in a cave, and his family shows up. I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but they were coming to help him out. And when his brothers and his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. In verse 2, And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. I'm going to stop right there. That's our verse, verse 2. That's what I want to talk about the rest of the time. Like, that, that, that's mind-boggling to me. Like, here's a king who, as a king and as a person of authority, is now setting out to, to make an army. And look at the kind of people he's attracting. People in distress, people in debt, people who literally are bitter in soul. Okay, so literally, these aren't like, because we can look at all those and we're like, that's, that's you and me, right? Anybody have some debt? Anybody have uh, some stress? Anybody like just bitter in soul, just have some discontentment in life? Absolutely. But these individuals that the passage is describing are literally people who could not get ingrained in the fabric of society that were marginalized and pushed away. And there was something about the life and the leadership of who David was that drew these kind of people to him. It's crazy. It's crazy because, as I was saying earlier, when I'm, when, when I'm picking my team, when I'm drawing my individuals, there's, like, there's, there's certain people, like if I'm putting together a basketball team, there's certain people I'm just going to be flat out like because I'm kind of competitive. Like there's certain people I don't want on my team. Like I hated it when we played pickup and Kyle Walton, he's not here, but when he was on the other team because he was always like one of the best players, if you know Kyle. Like, and I hated it when he was on the other team. And so I always wanted him on, on my team. Right? That's how, that's how we are. That's who we are. We gather around us people that can promote our cause, people that can further us down the line, people that can make us better. And where there's weakness, where there's not good enough, where there's, we just begin to marginalize, we just begin to push away, we just begin to, up. Oh, you're not good enough. And David here 
is surrounding himself, 400 of them. It's overwhelming, right? Like, like, bring on the most broken people. Like, come on. Like, there's something about David's life where he was a guy who, I mean, you look at the Psalms. What, what do we see when we see in the Psalms? We see a guy who's honest, who's honest about where he's at. There's something about honesty that's attractive, right? Because if all you see in a person is someone who just has it all together, like I was thinking about this as I was um, writing a, a letter to my wife last night just for today, this idea of when you're, when you're honest as a mom, when you're just real as a mom, when you're vulnerable before your kids as a mom, what does that do? That creates an attitude in your kids that says, like, I can identify and I can go to my mom in my poor choices, in my brokenness, in my sin, because she models humility and she models honesty and she models repentance. That's who we see in King David as a guy who was built, had a life built around mercy over the letter of the law. David had a life in absolute chaos. We've looked at that. We've looked at some of the different stories. Just absolute chaos. Yet there was something about him that even in the midst of that, he drew people that also had chaotic lives. And a lot of times in our minds, we have this perspective that there's certain people I got to remove from my life. And sure, I think there's sometimes that's true. Sometimes there's, there's areas of life that, where there's toxicity and there's problems and we have to begin to separate so we can be healthy and we can be whole. But you look at the life of David and you look at the life of Jesus and they weren't so much focused on what can this person do for me. Better yet, what can the Spirit of God do in me and through me for this person? That's who... David was, people could go, these individuals, these debtors, they didn't go to David and find shame in their debt. These people that were bitter in soul, and like, I don't know how I could go on. What would they do? They'd go to David and they'd hear the Psalms. They'd hear hope. They'd hear mercy. They found a refuge. Listen, in a king. That's rare. That's the kind of power we have as God's people is that we have power and authority where the broken and the weak, even our own selves, can find refuge in the power of the king. So what about David? Or what about Jesus? So we know that Jesus comes from the line of David, and we see these very characteristics in this very heart that David possessed we see in Jesus, because what do we know about Jesus? He embraced the outcast. You ever been an outcast? You ever felt like marginalized? You ever felt pushed away? You ever felt not welcomed? Probably some in here more than others, but all of us probably in some regard. Jesus loved the outcast. He went after the outcast. People hated him because he went for the outcast. Like, like you remember the story of John 4? Samaritan woman, we've, talk, we've talked about that here before. Okay, what does Jesus do? Here's a woman that's not accepted in society. Uh, one, because she's a woman. She's a Samaritan, which was deemed ceremonially unclean, couldn't have anything to do with her um, or her kind. You couldn't even travel through her town. What does Jesus do? Going right through her town. 
Not only am I going to see her at the well in the heat of the day because she's hiding from society because she's marginalized and outcast, I'm going to go and I'm going to engage in conversation with her. And I'm just not just going to engage in conversation with her. I'm not just going to engage in conversation with her. I'm going to offer her hope and life and engage in such a way that I could help her. John 8. What do we know about John 8? Adulterous woman. Again, again a woman. I just love, I love Jesus because he, he breaks all the norms and all the expectations of what we think a Christian should be, but yet we look at uh, the, what we think the Christian life should be, and then we look at the life of Jesus, and we're just like, wow, we're, just, we're, we're off. We're missing it. But, uh, so this adulterous woman, so um, these guys bring this woman who's caught in adultery to Jesus, and what does he do? So, like, this woman should be stoned because the law said that this woman should be stoned. And so what does Jesus do? He looks at them and says, let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. So here, mercy trumps the letter of the law because no one is without sin. And so no one can go to pick up the rock and throw it because no one is perfect. And what does Jesus say? I do not condemn you. And he empowers her. Go and sin no more. He empowers her. I love that. He doesn't just shame her. Even in the, I don't condemn you. He empowers her to move forward in her life for his glory. Another instance, Luke 14, where Jesus is having a conversation and he's talking about the kind of people that that we should spend our time with. And he says, he said also to the man who, was, who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. So this isn't like a biblical command to not have your friends over for Mother's Day um, or to have a birthday party um, at all. But, but I want you to notice what's happening here because Jesus makes it painstakingly clear that as Christians... We have to guard fervently against surrounding ourselves with people that benefit us. I hear that. Like it's so easy. It's so easy. Surrounding ourselves with people, with situations, with circumstances. Like, what, what does he specifically say? Unless they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Right? So there's an aspect to biblical community that's like, man, we're in community and where you need help, I'm going to help you. And where I need help, like, you're going to help me. And there's a reciprocity that happens. But there's also a calling on the Christian, on the child of God. And we see through the life of David and we see through the person of Jesus that every day we should be engaging with people who, who, who can not pay back what we give them. Listen, notice I did not say they don't have anything to offer us. Because if we walk by anybody, I don't care who you are, I don't care where you work, or like if you believe there's anybody in this world that has nothing to offer you, then you're in pride. Okay, but notice, let's, let's keep reading, because notice what Jesus is saying here. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Because here's what Jesus is saying. Like, think about this. Jesus is about to endure a cross 
and have his life poured out for you and for me. And we can, although we make attempts to and probably shouldn't in some regards with how we live, we can in no way repay him for what he did. We are the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. And Jesus is like, when you begin to pour out your life, listen, maybe even upon a child, mom, who could never really repay you. Because let's just be honest, moms, your kids have no clue how much you do for them. None. And, And listen, there's aspects where they never will. Even if they become a mom, there's aspects where they never will. Okay? And here's the truth, is that you're, you're, when you embrace that and not be bitter about that, when you embrace that, you're stepping into the kingdom of God. You're stepping into the kind of life that Jesus calls you to. Because it's not always about the give and take. For Jesus, it wasn't about the give and take. He gave everything. What do we offer him in return? The mess of our lives. Here you go. And what's amazing is he he receives worship from that. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. And notice the language of the kingdom here as it continues. Because in all of our dealings and all of our relationships... The danger for us as people is to think about how can I get ahead? How can I win? How can I make sure that in the end I, I win? Or I'm provided for, I'm repaid, and Jesus says, there's going to be a reckoning. There's going to be a payment for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Listen, I, I struggle to believe that. And to live in that. I struggle to live out this idea that, you know what, it doesn't matter what happens in my life. It doesn't matter how people treat me. Like, all that matters is my faithfulness to Jesus and my faithfulness to live out the kingdom, not in a way that makes me look good or makes me um, climb this ladder of fame or whatever, but in the end, so that God receives the glory. And in the end, if God wants to reward me, he wants to reward me. But what I know is he's good. And he's going to provide and I'm going to experience him. And that's enough. That's enough. But, but what, do we, what do we tend to do? We tend to feel shame around the kind of people, um, around certain kinds of people. Have you, have you ever felt that? Um, like like you, maybe you have that neighbor. And, and you're, like you're having your friends over and you're just like... Please don't be outside when my friends come over. I, gotta, I don't want my friends to see this neighbor. I don't, I don't want my friends to know that I live in a neighborhood where there, there's this person. And I don't like, so um, we had some new neighbors move in and they got written up by the city because their grass is like this tall. I know what you're thinking. Like, you should have been the really nice guy and got out your riding lawnmower and gone over and mowed their acre after you finished mowing your acre, you jerk of a pastor. Um, but but, but um, you were going to talk to me afterwards, weren't you? But like, and, and here, here's, here's the danger. And we, we all face it. Let's just all be flat out honest. Like somebody moves into your neighborhood and you're like, I wonder, like, how are they going to be for our community? How are they going to be for our neighborhood? Like, are they going to be a good neighbor? Are they going to watch out? Are they going to be protection of my kids? Are they going to be good kids to my kids? Like, are they going to mow their yard? Like, we're thinking about these kinds of things, right? Rather, oftentimes, than the tendency to think, okay, like, 
man, how am I going to get to engage in the gospel with this person? Now, both those things could both exist together. I'm not saying they can't, but how easy is it for us to think about what kind of contributions will this person make to my world, and I hope they're good, rather than realizing that the sheer fact that someone has life experience, no matter who they are, where they come from, and that they're loved by God is a gift to you. So go get to know them and go serve them and love them. Right? We have this idea where there's certain kinds of people that we tend to not want to surround ourselves with, right? Like, like you go to the grocery store and like you're like the, the kid that's just totally acting up and totally being crazy, and you're just like, I don't know this kid. Like this isn't my kid. Like I'm not even associated with that kid because it brings a sense of shame. Or we see the mentally handicapped, and 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 we think that like, oh, like, gosh, there's just so much shame around there, and there's so much. But here's what's so so crazy is that oftentimes people that in our pride we want to disassociate with. Because of whatever reason, we miss out on the reality of the kingdom of God and who Jesus was and who Jesus is to enter into the fray of this world and engage in love. Because of shame and because of pride. Here's my heart and here's my prayer for us as a church is that we would become a place where we could continue to be broken, but that the broken would feel like this place is home. You follow me? That people that don't have their lives all together, just like you and I don't have our lives all together, that the marginalized of society would feel like, gosh, I can come to this place and feel accepted. I can come to this place and feel loved and not feel shame and not feel judged. Because the people of North Church live out and embrace the kingdom of God like Jesus did. Keep going. Um, Matthew chapter 7. So Jesus just got done preaching the best sermon ever. I have to remind myself of that all the time. Every Sunday when I want to get up and preach the best sermon ever, I have to remind myself that it's not going to happen because there's one who already did it. So Jesus just got done preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Um, and, and notice these words, Matthew 7. I think this is up on the screen. Notice these words. It says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountains, great crowds followed him. So Jesus is, is teaching, he's preaching like the best sermon ever. People are in awe of him. They're amazed at him so much so that like he comes down, it's like the celebrity figure, like that everyone is coming after. Everyone wants to touch him. Everyone wants to talk to him. They're in awe of him. But Jesus, like that wasn't his heart and he wasn't fully impressed because I want you to notice what happens next. Actually, b- before we get to that part, um, let, me, let me say this. So much so when we look at the life of Jesus, is there not a great temptation to be a people that pursue great influence? Influence isn't wrong. Great fame, 
although aspects of fame aren't wrong. Okay? There's, there's parts where we want to be the kind of people where people look at us and they're just like, wow, what a great person. Which fundamentally isn't necessarily wrong, right? But, but there's an aspect where we want to pursue and we want people to look at us and be like, wow, like, look at what they're doing. Look how great of a mom she is. Look at how great of a dad he is. Look at how great of a pastor he is. Look how great of a teacher he is. Like we fight these things and yet, yet Jesus isn't about that. We want to hide the chaos that exists in our lives. We want to hide the ugly and act like we're, we have it all together. Like, that's the tendency. We want to project that we have all the answers. Yet honest brokenness is an invitation to come and, and find hope. Jesus had this ability to draw the outcasts. He didn't care about the spotlight. Listen, this is the Son of God. That when people like, would begin to worship him, they would say, no, it's not me, it's my father. This is the son of God. And yet, look at what he does here. Verse 2. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him. Okay, what's a leper? So it's this awful skin disease that really um, deemed a person unfit for society. Unwelcome. You cannot come over here unwelcome. Can't associate with this person yet. I want you to see what Jesus does because it's, it's crazy. It's like unlike we tend to do when like you're pulling up the, up the ramp and there's a homeless person sitting over here and you get over in the third lane because you don't want to make eye contact, let alone have them be standing right next to your window, right? You've done that. We've all done that. Come on, let's just be honest. We've all done that. Okay. But what does Jesus do with this outcast with this, like, oh my gosh, like, that, that's you? What, what does he do? Saying, Lord, if you will come, if you will, you can make, let me start over. Saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So unbelievable faith here on the part of this outcast that would be bold enough to even ask. But yet we should be people who pursue the outcast so they don't even have to ask because we're for the weak. I tell, my kid, I tell my older kids all the time when they hear their youngest crying and screaming, like it should, it should burden them because she's the weakest. And we've got to be a people that protect the weakest. And yet here, this, this, guy, this guy speaks out, help me, I'm, if you can make me clean. And I just love this. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him. I don't believe that this is just a miracle, like touch him, clean, good to go. Because Jesus could have full well spoke transformation over this guy, spoke healing over this guy, but he literally walked up to him, touched him. Which is like, I, I accept you. I have the power to heal you. I welcome, when all of society pushes you away, when popular culture pushes you away, Jesus says, you're welcome. You're welcome. I want to make you clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. 
I wonder if, I wonder if there's anyone, just think for a minute about the people in our lives, the people that we surround ourselves with. I wonder if there's anyone in our lives that won't find healing because we're too afraid to enter into the mess of their life. I don't know all the people you run with or you work with or live by, or, but I guarantee you, and I just, as, as we pray, ask the Spirit to probe our hearts, who in our lives are we, are we afraid of the commitment it will take? The aspect of the chaos unimpressive, even inconvenient lives. Let me just remind us that Jesus went to the uneducated and called them to start his church. He went to the nobodies and said, on you, I'm going to build my church. Peter, who denied him, on you, I'm going to build my church because who you are is not contingent upon who you are. And then I just love this, verse 4. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that, that Moses commanded for a proof to them. I think what's, ama- what's amazing about that reality is, that, is this. He didn't care about the fame. He's like, he did this healing. He's like, I don't want everyone to know about this because it's not about everyone knowing about this. Don't tell anyone. It's not about me. It's about my father. Listen, these are people that the world condemned. And I think as the church, as God's people, where we see the world condemning people, those are the first people we should be running to, to beckon into the welcoming arms of God's presence. It's interesting, um, this story, I just want to read it. It's, It's really quick. Um, about the Prince of Wales from India. It says there, there's an old story about the Prince of Wales visiting India when that country was part of the vast British Empire upon whose domain it was said that the sun never set. The caste system prevailed at that time and local officials had erected barriers in the first city that the prince visited. After greeting local officials, he commanded, take those barriers down. In the next city, 10,000 people gathered to welcome him under a banner carefully lettered in English, Prince of the Outcast. Listen, that's Jesus. And that should be you and me who are leading the charge to break down the barriers of those who are pushed aside and those who are marginalized. That's who Jesus is. Even, listen, let me even say this, even the religious outcast, those who are pushed away, hurt by the church. Listen, I'm convinced that one of the greatest gifts we can give to God's, as God's people we can give to people is the gift of listening and bearing the burden of just, man, just talk to me. Just look, like, let me just hear what, let me hear your journey and your story. And not be a person who's quick to judge, who's quick to you know, give, give you this answer, give you this, so you just need to change. I just want to listen. I just want to listen. Man, because I'll just tell you this. 
here's what I've learned this, this past couple of weeks. There's an aspect to life where you can just become entangled. And all of us do it. Like, we just become entangled in different things. Like, some people become entangled in good things, and some people become entangled in evil things. Nonetheless, we become entangled, and depending upon what we're entangled in, the getting out process is oftentimes a long road. Is God powerful, and does God do a transforming work? Absolutely. Does the, is the gospel the power of God to take a dead heart and make it alive? Absolutely. But yet there's still a work of untangling, not, the, not necessarily the punishment of sin where you're deemed you can't have relationship with God, but the everyday life of walking out of what you spent years being entangled by. So what am I saying? I'm saying this. That there's a journey for God's people and a journey for the church and a journey even in our own hearts to have a long obedience in the same direction type of perspective where we're willing to walk with people for years and years and years and years to find a slow, ever slow, ever slow movement forward into sanctification and into experiencing the Lord. Yet so often as God's people We build around ourselves the kind of people that benefit us, the kind of people that look like us, the kind of people that help us, the kind of people that will give us a good name. And that's not who Jesus was. Matthew 4, listen to these words. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And the great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. I want to be a kind of people. I want to be a kind of person people want to bring the hurting to. Because I'm hurting. I want to be the kind of church that people bring the broken to because we're broken and not because we have all the answers, but because we can be a community that presses into the one who has all the answers. That's who Jesus was. And even today, God's calling us to embrace the chaotic lives of others. Gosh, maybe there's somebody sitting across the room that you haven't pursued or haven't embraced because there's just something a little chaotic about their life. And let me just say, you God's put you here to go and engage, not to fix and not to be a mom or a dad necessarily, but to embrace, as, as one of my best friends told me the other day, it's about loving the person in front of your face. That's it. Love the person in front of your face. I'm so guilty of, oh, let me just get done with this conversation because I, I need to finish this up right here. So will you hurry up and finish what you're saying? Love the person in front of your face. Because what it means to be a people that embrace life in chaos is that we can be a people who actually restore dignity It's amazing how often our gospel attempts are the destruction of dignity and the destruction 
of being an image bearer? Because they're just judgmental and they're just like, you just need to change. And we forget to embrace the call to come and be with and to know the person of Jesus. Listen, to be a Christian is to, like Jesus, to be an outcast. Jesus was an outcast. He wasn't accepted. He was marginalized and even crucified so that you and me could find hope and healing. And listen, what God does to us, he wants to do through us. That's his calling on us as the church. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this morning. God, God, I don't know why your timing of this message was for today. But I'm, I'm confident that, that it was and it is. So I pray that even now, that as we think on you, that as we celebrate Mother's Day, that as we think on the sacrifices, not only of a mom, we think on the sacrifices of, of you, and you as the outcast, and you as the marginalized, and you as the one who's pushed away, and even as... Christians in a post-Christian society. Father, I ask that this morning you would press us and you would humble us and you would lead us to love the person in front of our face. Even if it's our own kid. Even if it's our own mom. Even if it's someone we wish wasn't in our lives. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for loving us. And we have nothing to bring you but broken, chaotic lives. God, would you move and do a work in a way that we couldn't plan in Christ's name? Amen.